Welcome to Sports Weekly with Ayaz Memon. Hello, everybody. It's us again, and we're back with yet another episode of Sports Weekly. We've got a delayed release because India's progress in the UK held us up. So we had to wait to see what happened there. And for a while, it looked like not much was happening. We almost recorded this episode yesterday. But then lunch happened. Jaspreet Bumrah had a killer lunch and England felt the full effect of that. To join me and speak more about that triumph at the Oval is, of course, Ayaz Memon. Hey, Ayaz, how do you think India fared yesterday? Well, Mr. Fantastic, it was a fantastic win. You know, if I might just kind of uh, have a play on words. Uh, I think this was uh, one of the best victories that India has had in in, uh, in recent years, maybe uh, in its cricket history. Now, I know that this has become, uh, you know, we use these words great and greatest and all that. We bandy it around a little loosely. But remember, this is, you know, 50 years since the 1971 triumph at the same ground at the Oval. Uh, that time too, India had conceded a first innings lead. I think that time the lead was 110. This time it was 99. And the manner in which the team came back, you, you have to give them plaudits for it. Uh, and this is the second time it's happened in this series. So what it's telling us is that there's a lot of resilience in the team. They know how to fight back. They 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 kind of put their all when the chips are down. Obviously, the question then, the corollary question is, why do they get into such a situation? You know, at Leeds, they were bowled out for 78 in the first innings year. Uh, at the Oval, they were bowled out for 191 on actually a plum wicket. It batted superbly all through the f- five days, actually, except for that last uh, last couple of sessions where the Indians bowled exceptionally well. So that is the area of concern. I don't think we can run away from that. India's batting is really still an issue. It's not superb just because we've won. I think the, the victory has come at, Lord, at Lord's and at, at the Oval because of the bowlers. Not to take away anything from uh, Rohit Sharma's brilliant 100, his first overseas, and of course, the contributions of KL Rahul, Virat Kohli, Cheteshwar Pujara, and not the least, uh, Shardul Thakur, who must have run Rohit Sharma very, very close uh, for the Man of the Match award. But really, it's the it's, it, it, in many ways, this victory was fashioned by Jaspreet Bumrah. Only two wickets. But those two wickets came when it really mattered and really skillful spell. Six overs, giving away six runs, picking up two wickets, both of them clean bowled. Uh, Shardul Thakur doing well with the ball, getting the important wicket of Joe Root in the in the second innings. And then Umesh Yadav, having spent the better part of 12 months sitting in the dressing room or in the dugout because he's not been able to find a place in the team, comes in here and picks up six wickets in the match. Uh, Jadeja finally giving glimpses of what he's capable of picking up four wickets in the match. So, overall, I think fantastic team contribution. I think there's not one single player you can say who didn't put in something or the other uh, in, in making sure India win. But ultimately, when you look at it in this series too, it's the bowlers who are shining for India. Yeah, and that's actually traditionally been a big weak point for India. Uh, we've never really had the out-and-out fast bowlers. But those those two wickets uh, in the middle of the day by Jaspreet Bumrah on a dead track, uh, the way he got Ollie Pope first and then the dream ball to Johnny Besto. I think he put the fear of God in the minds of the English batsman or whatever was left out there. From there on, it was a steady procession for them to even fall from 140-odd for two to 147 for six. The game was pretty much over there, no matter how much any optimist thought that Joe Root could bring them out of trouble. Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, when we talk of India's collapses, let's not forget that England's collapses have been far more frequent 
and you know in many ways inflicted more damage on the team look at what happened when they were in india they collapsed almost every time barring the first test match which they won but the other three which they lost they would lose like six wickets for 38 runs or 40 runs or 60 runs or something like that which is precisely what happened uh, over here in the second innings we saw what happened at lords in the second innings under pressure look i mean in a way one must acknowledge that this is not a terrific england team you know they they don't have ben stokes they don't have jofra archer they don't have stuart broad now barring stokes the others are bowlers i know but you know it makes a difference to the team and in batting they've been somehow searching for quality players to give some kind of support to joe root and it's not been happening happening for the last 4 or 5 years that's the source of worry uh, even somebody like hasib hamid who's you know 24 he's a young guy but his first class batting average is in the early 30s you know he's 34 35 the batting average and we saw what happened under pressure that he just became a stone waller he just couldn't rotate the strike he couldn't you know take the take the attack to the bowlers so to speak put the pressure off so it is just left and you know david malan who looked capable of doing it going by some of the matches knox is played in this series he got run out because of the pressure on hasib uh, chasing an impossible single there and johnny bairstow moin ali i mean these guys have been in and out of the england cricket team for the last maybe 8 9 years without quite establishing themselves in the five day format and without quite making the contributions which which, which could make england a team that wins regularly now just to put it in perspective again they lost against new zealand uh, in the in the test series before the series against india and last year they actually struggled to beat west indies and pakistan so it's not a fabulous uh, you know england uh, test team at all so speaking of england's batting failures uh, there's this amazing statistic that in this year there have been 43 ducks scored by english batsmen in test cricket 30 of those have come against india in the four tests that they played in india earlier in the year and in the four that have just been completed and there's still one to go uh i think that in itself is testament to how badly their batting has been performing and actually that makes the missing bowlers even more important that just kind of compounds the problem for joe root doesn't it it does actually you know they've been struggling to find a, a decent opening pair then they managed to get hasib hamid and rory burns who put up a couple of good past- partnerships without quite taking uh, the the attack to the bowlers or dominating the indian bowlers that's the difference say between a rohit sharma he may he had a he was grafting his way but once he passed 40 50 the guy looked in such control that a century seemed almost inevitable and not just a century seemed in, inevitable but the manner in which he then would score runs against the bowlers it just gave them no chance now obviously rohit sharma is cut from a different cloth you know i mean i, I don't want to compare asib amid and rory burns to rohit who's you know in the white ball format we know he's already an all time great and in the red ball format uh, red ball cricket uh, if he plays for another 4 5 years we'll probably see quite a few thousand runs from him in this format too so you know he's a outstanding batsman so apart from joe root you know he's probably in the form of his life and he, if you had to do a pecking order of batsmen or the top batsmen in the world today he would probably be right at the top maybe you know nudge even he is number 1 icc number 1 batsman now but even otherwise for the sheer mastery he made runs in sri lanka he made runs in india he's making runs in england and he's making them with a degree of uh, you know excellence which is which comes you know this kind of this kind of form comes 
once, maybe twice in the life of a batsman. This is a golden run that he's been having. But apart from Joe Root, the batting is virtually in a shambles. Even Josh Butler couldn't get couldn't score runs. Uh, Ollie Pope has been in and out of the of the team. Dan Lawrence hasn't made the cut. You know, it's a very uh, it's a struggling England batting lineup. So in that sense, it was a little easier for India. But I, you know, just to put another spin, another perspective on it, uh, on this. As yet, India have only won thrice ever a series in England. That shows the difficulty quotient of beating England in England. It's not easy. And certainly not easy for Indian teams. The last victory series win came in 2007. Now, you know, I don't want to be presumptuous. Uh, there's still a test match to be played. We may or may not win that match, but we certainly can't lose the series. So that, in that sense, India has done well. And, uh, you know, they've coped with the conditions well. They've, they, the bowlers have been outstanding, the English bowlers. Jimmy Anderson, Chris Wokes, who came and played the, the, the in this match. And then, of course, there's Ollie Robinson, who's been a find for England in, the, in this summer. Against New Zealand, against India, he's been picking up wickets regularly. So, for both teams, there's a mismatch. The bowlers are doing well. The batsmen, not so well. But in the case of England, the mismatch is even more pronounced. They are virtually, it's a one-man army where batting is concerned. So, much has been said already about how Joe Root did not use his bowlers or his spinners specifically well at all. And the impact that it will have on the fast bowlers with a whole test match yet to come. I think Jimmy Anderson looks a shadow of himself. He just looks exhausted. And uh, while you're right, there have been a couple of good finds uh, in Ollie Robinson and even Craig Overton looked pretty good. Uh, I think... For the next test match, Mark Wood seems a certainty to come back. But can England really recover from this hammering of day five? And can they find the mental resolve to fight uh, for a draw? Big question, but it happened at Leeds, you know, after after losing at Lords. And actually, that was a pretty demeaning loss because they lost in, what, uh, under two sessions. So, they recovered and they, they thrashed India by an innings. Now, obviously, the conditions favoured uh, England there and Leeds, uh, I think, Virat misread the the pitch, chose to bat first, and India were bundled out for seventy eight. And when, when you know, if you if you make such a paltry score in the in the first innings, you're always in trouble under pressure. And that's what happened with India. So, can England fight back? Yes, they can fight back uh, because the Indian batting also is wobbly. So, what really India need to do is you, they can trust their bowlers to do well. Uh, I suspect what India will do is follow, take a leaf out of. England's book and maybe rest Mohammad Shiraj, who didn't look up to, you know, he didn't look at his best in in this match. Though he put in a couple of good spells. Maybe bring back Mohammad Shami. Of course, the million-dollar question, which which will still be asked, is whether R. Ashwin will play or not, at least a single test match. But that we'll have to wait and see. Because his best option, or the, his best chance was to play at the Oval, uh, where, where the pitch generally gives slow bowlers uh, a little help. Uh, it's not usually the case at Old Trafford. So, that apart, Ashwin apart, I think that Shami could come back uh, in place of Mama Siraj. So, that you have fresh bowlers. Bumrah doesn't seem to have been affected at all. Though he's been playing all the matches. He's still looking, fighting fit. Umesh has been, uh, and Thakur are both, you know, they haven't bowled enough or not too much. So, they'll be fresh. And India will want to go with an attack which is uh, full of firepower. It's not jaded, it's not fading which is not the case with England. I mean, if they rest Anderson, forget about the, the threat from his skills. The psychological threat to India will diminish by 75-80%. And you know, that, that will allow perhaps India to breathe far more freely or the Indian batsmen. I don't know whether tactically 
Joe Root or the England team management will want that, which means then you have a, a, a tired bowler coming in to bowl, bowl at your batsman. So that doesn't seem like a great option either. And overall, I must say, Mr. Fantastic, that Joe Root, much as he's been in brilliant form, the best batsman on either side by a country mile, he's not been looking like a terrific tactical thinker in that sense. Uh, you know, the bowling changes uh, that he's brought about, the, the the times when the pressure could have been applied a little differently. The, I mean, he, you know, he didn't bowl Moin Ali till the batsman was set and after that Moin Ali was punished. So these are things that matter in a, in a test match. Uh, Moin Ali could never get to exploit any patch on the pitch because he would get 3-4 overs and then get taken off, uh, hit for a couple of boundaries because that was the only spinner they had. So I think Joe Root tactically has been a couple of steps behind Virat Kohli. Virat was absolutely superb on the last day. You know, he just uh, he was just so aggressive. Every change that he made got him a result or a reward. And that's something that England have lacked. Well, you mentioned R. Ashwin and whatever anyone's reasons for leaving him out. Uh, the fact is that a win like this will almost definitely gloss over any other failure. So, Jadeja, yes, he had the... Uh, he had he had a couple of impact moments, but I don't think he instilled much confidence uh, amongst viewers that he is the go-to guy at that uh, point in the batting order or in the bowling order. Uh, the even bigger question, if you ask me, is Achin Kerahane. If there was one failure in this entire team, I think it was him during this test match. Uh, he didn't score runs. I think he dropped a catch as well in the second innings. Might have been a bit late in the innings to have too much of an effect on the result. But he just doesn't seem like he's all there right now. And maybe it's worth giving him a rest and getting in some fresh blood in the middle order, which, I mean, on current form, no one can do worse, right? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I uh, I did mention that everybody had contributed. And yes, it was a team effort. But Ajinkya Rahane not succeeding again, you know, sticking out like a sore thumb because he's been having a poor run ever since the 100 at Melbourne, which helped India level the series in Australia and then stage that fantastic comeback under his captaincy to win the series. Uh, he's been he's been the least performing batsman in the top order. And that's not a happy sign because, you, you know, two, three years back or four years back, he was seen as your most reliable batsman, especially when playing overseas. Uh, now he's going through the horrors. It's a very lean patch. Uh, and you're right, even the, you know, he's otherwise such an outstanding fielder close in. When you drop a catch like that, you start, you know, from the outside, you wonder whether his batting failures are playing on his mind or playing on his mind and therefore the concentration is not there. You start brooding about what you're doing wrong. And I, I think if there is a likely change, it, it will be in the in the middle order. It could be, uh, you know, Hanuma Vihari. It could be Surya Prakash Yadav. Those are the two obvious choices uh, to pick from, uh, you know. So I, I suspect that there might be just that one change. But on the other hand, the way Virat has been backing all his guys throughout the series, you know, I mean, Rahane and Pujara, you know, people wanted them or lots of people were debating whether they should play even the second test match, having failed in the first or then certainly the third test match. But then, you know, he's been backing them. So now that the series cannot be lost, will he still trust Rahane too? Or, uh, which is also likely because he's a very aggressive captain, he'll say, you know, I want to win this 3-1, leave my stamp, leave the stamp of this team and I'm not, you know, let's not carry any passengers. Let's go with somebody fresh. Somebody, somebody who might be hungrier. And then it gives a chance to Hanuma Bihari or Surya Prakash Yadav. Exactly. I think, uh, I, let's hope that uh, 
Virat is thinking along those lines because this is a terrific opportunity and you don't want to have a situation where one out of form guy took the team down. Uh, there's absolutely massive respect for Ajinkya Rahane, let me add that, especially given what he did for the team as stand-in captain in Australia. But uh, horses for courses is what this team has always maintained and I think this horse needs a change, of course. Well, moving on from all of the cricket and everything that's happening internationally to the IPL. We're a few days away from part two of season 2021. Let's call it that, shall we? Uh, And the BCCI is already preparing for 2022. They've just announced uh, six new cities that can bid for the two new franchises to be added. Ayaz, can you decipher this for us? Well, first part is the expansion. I think that, uh, you know, they've been wanting to do 10 teams. In fact, in one of the blueprints that I had uh, once uh, kind of access to, the idea was to have 12 teams in the IPL. So we had 10 teams in 2010. Then, you know, things started going wrong. It blew up into a major controversy and went back to eight teams. And, uh, you know, then there were two two teams which were suspended and two teams were given uh, to allow to participate for two years. Uh, so all kinds of things have been happening. But I think the idea is to look at you know, there's been a clamor from various cities uh, wanting to be part of the IPL. The clamor comes from the state cricket associations, like for instance, Ahmedabad uh, is the the biggest from uh, uh, the Gujarat Cricket Association is the biggest in that state, and they've been wanting a team for the longest time. Uh, even Lucknow from UP and so on. So six six cities have been identified, of which two will get it. There's obviously also a little. Uh, political dimension to it, you know, where uh, in many ways it's a matter of pride for a, a, a city to get an IPL team. Also, as it happens, it ends up becoming a revenue earner. So there's a clamor. Now, I think that, uh, you know, Ahmedabad looks to me to be a front runner. They've got the infrastructure in place. There's the Narendra Modi Stadium, which has come up uh, with the biggest capacity in the world. Uh, and, you know, and I've been several times to Gujarat. I've done a lot of commentary there. There's, you know, it's there's manic following for the for the for the for cricket. So it'll be a huge blockbuster uh, event in uh, in Ahmedabad if if and when they get uh, the rights. I think the idea is very. It's become very clear over the last 13, 14 years that the IPL becomes a source of major attraction in any city, wherever it is, whether it's in Chennai or Bangalore or Mumbai or you know where cricket is concerned. So, rather than having a first-class ma- or multiple first-class matches or a test match or an ODI match, even a T20 international, cities would rather have IPL, like a home team or a home ground to an IPL franchise. That's what all cities are looking for. The business of it is absolutely more important. Uh, the expansion of the IPL also means more opportunities to more cricketers. and of course, more television viewing for us fans. Uh, Given what IPL has contributed to India in terms of international cricket over the past many years, the discovery of Jaspreet Bumrah, for example, one of the top examples, uh, do you think this is a more positive move towards expanding the league? It is. It is. You know, you mentioned about more opportunities for cricketers, but, you know, I would go a little beyond that. It creates a far more, uh, you know, bigger ecosystem for, for coaches, for uh, fitness uh, specialists for you know all kinds of people who are involved with the IPL and depend on it for livelihood. It may be only for 50, 60 days, but it pays for 
you know, upkeep of the entire year from for so many people. So players apart, and it, it, you are right, it's made Indian cricket I think stronger and richer. Uh, Bumra for one, the Pandya brothers. There's Ravindra Jadeja who came through the IPL. Even R Ashwin uh, actually made his mark first in the IPL and so on. Surya Prakash Yadav. I mean, he's been a terrific performer for Bombay or Mumbai for the last maybe seven, eight, nine years. But it's only after he started doing well in the IPL that he's found his way into the Indian team. At least he's in the squad. So the IPL's contribution in making, in turning the spotlight on players and making them into to stars and kind of fast-tracking their progress into the Indian team is undoubted. And obviously, it's also added to the talent quotient of the team. You know, I mean, look at the guys like Mohammad Siraj and uh, Shami and all. They, they're all part of the domestic structure, yes. But the IPL is just focusing attention on them uh, to, to be showcased or their talents to be showcased. And then they get into the big league. Well, moving on to other sports now. The Paralympics recently concluded and India had an absolutely outstanding haul of uh, medals. Five golds, eight silvers, six bronze medals. What an outstanding effort that was, Ayaz. And we spoke about this briefly when uh, recently. And I think these guys deserve far more recognition than they presently get. I think so. I mean, look, uh, first things first, the, the number of medals. And you cannot run away. There's been a magnificent improvement since, you know, since the last Games. I mean, in the last Paralympics in 2016, uh, India had a contingent of 19. This time the medals were 19. The contingent was 54. You know, 54 people went to Tokyo. So that in itself is a is a good sign. Now, what's happening? It's at two levels, and I think we must understand both the levels. One is, of course, appreciation, as you mentioned, of the athletes. Paralympics for Pele, you know, it used to be uh, thought of as you know people with handicap, be something, you know, give them some sports to play, and you know, but that's not the case when you look at some of these athletes. And the way they performed, of course, there is a disability that they've got to overcome. But it is in no way taking away from sporting excellence. And that's really the point to be noted. You know, I mean, it's it's, it's stupendous. If you look at some of the things, and I've, I've seen videos of, of volleyball and tennis and, you know, badminton and stuff like that, which, which you know, is being showcased. And now, thanks to live coverage and, you know, enhanced media coverage, we're getting to know what is goes into the making of these Paralympics. So the hurdle is first to come to terms with your own disability as a youngster. That is the first challenge. You overcome that, not the physical disability alone, but also the psychological trauma of that disability which you have to overcome. And then your quest for excellence begins. When you excel, the inspiration you send out to the rest of the world is is fantastic. I mean, in the last two weeks, I think I've watched almost you know, every major event that has taken place in the Paralympics, maybe not in real time, but certainly on my, uh, on uh, the, the videos later on, on my mobile or on my laptop, because I just wanted to keep abreast as to what's happening, not just what's happening in terms of records and timings and medals. That's one thing. The other is, gosh, how are these guys doing it? You know, and it tells you as an individual, frankly, you, are, you know, you, me and anybody else has no reason to crib at all. If when you watch these athletes go out, these Paralympics, to go, go out and perform like this. The other is, and I think this is credit to the government, the Paralympic Association. I think athletes like Deepa Malik and Devendra Jajaria, who I have uh, interacted with uh, post-Rio and who are former medal winners. Jajaria won another medal this time. He's got two gold medals and a silver. 
you know, he's an outstanding sports person, a javelin thrower, much like Neera Chopra. And Neera Chopra put out a tweet congratulating him, you know, except acknowledging uh, what he, what Jajari had done. So what happened is that these athletes started talking about their, what made them pursue athletics or pursue sport. Uh, you know, Deepa Malik, as we all know, waist downward, she's immobile. And for that lady to go and after being a mother, couple of kids, uh, you know, come out of a debilitating condition and go out and participate in the Paralympics is such an inspiring story. So I think the fact that they broke their reserve and started talking about it openly and honestly and every conceivable forum, that added to the spread of the message. And of course, the support, support from the government to build more opportunities for the Paralympics. That's why you had 54 uh, going out this time. And I think that's a great thing, even in every, everyday life. People who are disabled or with disabilities will shed their complexes. Otherwise, there's so many people, you know, we see disabled who have a, 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 a complex about their condition. And these are the athletes who are going and breaking those shackles. They are removing those shackles, destroying them. In fact, in its place, putting an aura. And I think that's a great sign because in, in our social fabric, it adds to the inclusiveness of all kinds of people, including those with disabilities. Absolutely. Well, let's just hope we're able to appropriately celebrate and reward uh, these performers, these athletes for everything that they've achieved for the country. Moving on to tennis. There's a lot of action happening over in New York. And to discuss all of that, we have Somil Arora joining us as well now. Hey, Somil. Hey, Somal, how are you doing? Are you keeping awake long hours to watch the action in, in uh, New York on the US Open? And what do you think is uh, Novak Djokovic's chances of completing the Grand Slam? Hey, Ayaz, thank you so much. And there is a very good chance of Novak Djokovic actually ending up doing that big calendar slam that we're talking about. But there is a big hurdle in the way. It's all lining up for a mega Djokovic versus Zverev clash in the semifinals. And that will be a blockbuster match coming up right now. And the reason being, Zverev has won on hard courts at the Olympic Games. He was the gold medalist right there. And Djokovic, of course, carrying on all his form from behind. So this is going to be a very interesting tournament right down to the very end. And Djokovic could very well do that big calendar slam. But there's also Medvedev in the way. There could also be Felix Auger-Aliasim in the way. And with him, He's going to be fighting a young Carlos Alcaraz in the quarterfinals. That's going to be a fun match between the Canadian and the Spanish 18-year-old tennis player. And a word on Carlos Alcaraz, right? The reason why I highlight him so much is firstly because he's the same age as me, which is just remarkable. Born in 2003, and he beat Stefanos Tsitsipas. Yes, the Tsitsipas in round number three. That, Mr. Fantastic, is just... One of the biggest upsets of the entire year, I have to say. An 18-year-old rocking up and beating Sitsipas clean. And it's amazing, right? Sitsipas... How, how did Sitsipas lose? Was he not allowed a toilet break? <laughs> That's what the entire world has been talking about. But no, I think he did take that toilet break. Eventually, it was just... It looked like Carlos was more hungry for it, if you know what I mean. As a youngster, he's got more to prove, more to do, and he's knocked out some really big names in this. And Sitsipas just tip of the iceberg now. Well, you know, everyone's talking about Djokovic and his uh, major Grand Slam coming up, but there is a fairly broad Italian hurdle in his way before anyone else, which is Matteo Berrettini. And I will not be surprised if Berrettini finally has the stomach, speaking of hunger, by the way, uh, to to take on Novak and beat him. 
Novak's lost Novak's lost more sets leading up to his fourth round match than he has in a very long time in the early rounds of a Grand Slam. He looks a little tired. He's had a bit of a tough time. Uh, even against Brooksby in his third round match, he looked completely out of sorts in the first set. And it was only Brooksby's inexperience that allowed, uh, or rather that held him back from winning it. I don't think Berrettini has any of those problems. He's played at the highest level for a while now. I think this might just be his tournament, Novak really needs to make sure he's tuned in from the first game to beat Berrettini. On the overall title, if Novak can beat Berrettini, the title is his. I don't think anyone else can stop him. No Zverev, no Medvedev. They can't do that. Uh, if anything, a real outside chance could be for Felix Auger-Aliassime because he's just looked the part this tournament. He's been He's been ready for the big fight. No, it generally has been. But that's the fun part, right? We can't tell. On the whole, there have been certain players that, that have been looking very impressive, but the others, it's all down to what you can do on the day. And usually, that is where Djokovic trumps up all the others. But let's wait and watch. But on, on the women's side, Mr. Fantastic, I am baffled. I don't have any other word. I'm not going to hide my surprise and shock in any way whatsoever. I am just baffled by the fact that firstly, Ash Barty, the number one seed and of course, the defending champion from Wimbledon coming up the last Grand Slam, she lost to Shelby Rogers in the third round and okay, she also lost at the Olympics at a similar state so I think one can excuse something quite like that. But there's also a bit of shock that Bianca Andreescu, the 2019 champion, lost to Maria Sakkari in round four but again, Maria Sakkari is a very much improved player and she could be going on to win the title but the biggest shock here, Naomi Osaka out in round number three to a 19-year-old Canadian tennis player in Leila Fernandez. I don't get it. What is going on here? Well, the women's uh, side of the draw has always been a little uncertain. You know, you had certainties until Serena Williams to for a while Venus Williams, Sharapova. Uh, they were in action. You knew that most of them would make it to at least a certain stage of the tournament. But these days, there really isn't that one or two powerhouse performers who you can vouch will make it to the later rounds. There is no one dominant player. Naomi Osaka looked it, but look, she's got other issues as well. And uh, I know that we're going to speak about her, but just her losses of late have put more pressure on her mentally. And I think she might just hold up her end of the statement that she's going to take a longish break and not sure when she'll next play. Uh, that's a tough one. And you have to respect her decision because whatever they go through physically, mentally, only they really know. And it's it's not a bad idea if she takes a longish break, comes back rejuvenated and hungry because God knows the women's sport needs it. We do. We really need a player like Naomi Osaka, right? And it's so amazing to see Naomi coming up and championing the mental health side of things in the world of tennis. But again, when the performances are not backing it up, it's better to take a break and come back and maybe come back even stronger because that's what we want to see in the end. Well, moving on to football, uh, we had an international break. And in that international break, a lot of stuff happened. Wales, for instance, uh, saw Gareth Bale score his second international hat-trick. Am I right about that? Uh, I think, yeah. And Cristiano Ronaldo has now become the leading international football goal scorer with a Nelson of goals. That's one for the cricket fans. And he's ready to play for United this weekend, is he? Uh, he could be. Again, there's no official news from United on that. But just a word on his achievement. 111 international goals. Let's not bring Messi into the discussion. Let's not create, oh, this guy's better, that guy's better, whatever. Guys, 111 international goals at the age of 36. 
what is this man i don't get it ronaldo is just something else what a machine can't wait to see him in action in united colors just because i'm a pure football fan not a united fan i said it before we move away from football um there was some craziness happening in south america in the argentina match you want to talk us through what happened there somil Oh, not just any Argentina match, an Argentina versus Brazil match in Brazil with a full lineup. And okay, calm down for a second, saddle yourself, uh, get some popcorn and some drinks because for the next couple of minutes you will be prepared to have your jaw dropped. This is what happened, right? It's almost like a director wrote this down in their notebook and wanted to film it in a movie. The the match began. Argentina and Brazil had a really intense first few minutes. Really fast tackles going around. A really fun match going around. But then health officials, Brazilian health officials, stormed onto the pitch and tried to arrest the Argentine players. And, and generally, this is something true. And why did that happen? Now let me come back to the whole story. The reason is that if anyone comes from the UK to Brazil, they have to actually. undergo a 14 day quarantine because England is on the red list for Brazil and vice versa as well and there were four premier league players in the argentine squad that were coming from uh, from England i'm sorry on now on the flip side brazilian players don't have to do that because they are from brazil but uh, any foreigners have to the thing is the argentine players apparently lied firstly to their clubs saying that they were not going there but eventually they did which is something bizarre right how how can you do that the, the clubs of course watch the international football call ups they know what's going on so that's a funny thing a couple of players will be apprehended for that but secondly they lied to brazilian health officials at the airport saying that they did not actually come from england or any red listed country so they got in there they played the match for the first couple of minutes and that is when the brazilian health officials realized oh wait this is not correct they tried to actually catch them before the match but the dressing room was locked so they had to go in stop the game arrest the players and come back off that was just bizarre what's going on and the argentine players of course walked off saying that they didn't want to play the game anymore it was abandoned but mr fantastic it's more of a it's more of a political and another political more of a societal issue this one fifa can't intervene in this the governing bodies can't intervene it's all on the health regulations and the rules and the argentine players quite simply flouted them and it's all gone back to this whole discussion should we genuinely have so many international matches should we genuinely have had a copa america that could have been used instead for uh, the fifa qualifiers and this will happen again because later on in october we're going to have another set of friendlies like this one for the world cup qualifiers in brazil and argentina where they will be coming from england which will most likely be a red list country so there is a very realistic chance of the same drama happening all over again Yes, fact is stranger than fiction. I you can't make that up. I'm speechless. I I'll just wait for the Netflix show for this one. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Genuinely, this is just a, a a mockery of rules and regulations. Well, speaking of mockery, how's the F1 doing in Holland? What's happening there? I believe there was some crazy stuff happening and tell us more about silly season that's coming up. Indeed, so it was the biggest party one could have ever imagined in all of Holland apart from Holland being in the World Cup final. It was a sea of orange at the small tiny coastal town called Zandvoort, but one little king of Zandvoort called Max Verstappen won and dominated there. And this has turned up to be such a big win, right? There were 70,000 fans bringing their flares, bringing their orange t-shirts. It's like the biggest party over there and the new circuit had just come up after 36 years. It felt something special. and it was rounded off right with the poetic moment of max verstappen winning but importantly mercedes right there looked second best mr fantastic they couldn't 
do anything to take Red Bull down. They, they tried everything. But Hamilton was on fire. He was clocking in many fastest laps. Mercedes as a team was trying alternate strategies here and there, but they just could not beat Red Bull. That was how quick they were. Ferrari beat, of course, McLaren in the Constructors' Championship. They've got a little bit of a lead over there. But silly season, that's a good point you mentioned. So what's happened right now is that Kimi Raikkonen, the Formula One legend, that guy who said, leave me alone, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, that one. The 2007 world champion, he has retired from the sport. He will be doing so at the end of the year. And he was racing for Alfa Romeo. Now that's opened up a seat at Alfa Romeo. And now Valtteri Bottas, the Mercedes second driver, he is going to leave Mercedes for Alfa Romeo. But don't get me wrong, it's not his intentional first choice. He was sort of forced out of the team because they wanted one George Russell who's been waiting in the wings for two years. Everyone has been wondering, when will he be called up? When will he be called up? It's happening. George Russell will be driving for Mercedes in 2022. And this means two British drivers, a clash of the generations at Mercedes, with George Russell, the young gun, the young British blazing driver, against Lewis Hamilton, the old statesman with seven world championships, potentially even eight at the end of this year. What a season it counters up to be. It really is going to be great fun next year. Well, that's that for this week, folks. Thanks, everyone, for joining in. Thanks, Somil. Thanks, Ayaz. And we'll be here next week with a lot more action. Thank you, Mr. Fantastic. As always, great fun. And we will catch up next week, hopefully, with good news about the Indian cricket team in England. 